Welcome back to season five of That's What She Did podcast. We're dedicated to amplifying the voices of the women leaders, innovators, and rebels you don't already know. We highlight everyday women who are impacting today's social issues while also centering the voices of women of color. In short, we curate the stories of brilliant women. This season, we're bringing you Women Who Disrupt. Each episode, you're going to hear from an impactful and inspiring woman who push your thinking, challenge your assumptions, and most importantly, inspire you to find a way to create impact in your corner of the world. I'm Tangia Renee, creator and host of That's What She Did. Thank you for joining me and your fellow inspiration junkies as we learn from and connect with today's brilliant women. Hey there, welcome back to another episode of That's What She Did podcast. You're listening to season five, episode eight. I'm your host, Tangi Renee. Before we get started, I want to give you a heads up for those of you who are new to the show or haven't been listening for very long, that most of the content for this season was recorded prior to the pandemic or or just as quarantine was happening in the United States. So some of the content um, references it or not. It was just, please keep in mind that it was in a different time than we are now. This particular episode was recorded when we thought that um, self-quarantine was going to be a week or two. Clearly, that hasn't been the case. So that's where we are. I want to introduce you to Reagan Bird for this week. She is an anti-oppression activist and consultant, and she's doing incredible work across the spectrum. The work she's doing in and of itself is very disruptive, and I'm loving the conversation we had around everything from patriarchy and how it harms men to what anti-oppression is and how people get stuck with their ideas of racism. I'm thrilled to bring you Reagan Bird. She is an anti-oppression consultant. And I think just the term anti-oppression work in general is disruptive. So we're going to have this really interesting conversation today, I think, about the differences between anti-oppression work versus equity, inclusion, and diversity, which is, you know, the buzz terms that we're all familiar with. And just this a, a more unique approach to inclusion work in the current context of our society. So Reagan, welcome to the show. How the heck are you today? Hello, I am doing pretty good. Um, Dealing with coronavirus anxiety in terms of closures and things like that. Uh, But for the most part, I feel like um, this is good. I feel like there are exciting things happening and um, just looking forward to what the remainder of the year holds. up to and including the election, um, a lot of interesting conferences and things happening later this year. So yeah, looking forward to it. All right. Yeah, a lot of stuff happening in the world as we record this. We are sort of, (laughs) I don't know if we're at the beginning or the height of coronavirus fear right now. We're somewhere in the the middle of uncharted territory. So we are Mm -hmm. just 
recording podcasts <laughs> to get us through it. <laughs> I, I, I just continue to be amazed about how progressives, we keep having our points that we're making punctuated by like reality itself. Mm-hmm. So so what better way to talk about, hey, everyone needs universal health care and everyone needs paid sick leave than, hey, yeah, a pandemic is going to make us, like we're not going to be able to survive a pandemic without people having access um, to this type of um to these types of resources or um, Bloomberg running for president and being like, yeah, so yeah, this is how rich billionaires are is they can literally buy kind of buy an election if they want to. Are you cool with that? Or do you want like, <laughs> want like something else to happen there? So I, I guess I don't know. Um, I don't know how this is striking people who are, don't consider themselves on the liberal or progressive spectrum, but I feel like, Hopefully this is waking some folks up. Everything should be waking folks up. The planet, mm-hmm. the presidency, everything should be, hopefully that's what's needed. If not, then I'm not sure how we can um, articulate our points any more strongly than, than just showing, look at what's happening. <laughs> yeah. Like just look at the massive gaps in our social structure. Yes. Absolutely. So, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a fascinating conversation. Um, Reagan, I'd like to know, so you and I met at a dinner like sort of a dinner party, which was a really fun and just like a really cool event. there was like a lot of really interesting, wonderful women there. So I was excited to have been there. And I got just interested in the work that you're doing because you call yourself and you do the work of anti-oppression consulting. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean? So anti-oppression, um, uh, to me is like, I talk, I call first of it the work, like the work of anti-oppression. Um, a lot of us refer to what the work is folks who work in activist spaces. Um, to me, I consider it the work of saving humanity. And what I mean by that is, um, for at least for the majority of recorded human history, for at least our understanding of stuff, when we have built systems like communal systems, we have never built systems that are totally, um, based on, merit justice based on a full understanding of of humanity. Even if we go back to uh, patriarchy, one of the oldest systems of oppression um, in which um, women have been oppressed by, um, by men as like a class, as in, and, and the beginnings seem to be uh, wanting to control paternity status. So those, those of us who are giving birth in society um, from the very beginning, um, having restricted social access, having restricted economic access, political access, the majority of human history has had these systems of oppression operating. Um, and the question is why? The question is, um, why is this the instinct of so many people? Um, or why do we allow people who want power and want to turn other people into resources? Why do we allow those folks to become leaders? Why is it so common? And for a long time, I feel like we haven't really had the ability to articulate, hey, we're all human, we're all people, we're all similar on fundamental levels. That's actually been missing for most of human history as well. Like we didn't have the knowledge or the expertise of the language to communicate that to each other. Now we're here. Now we can communicate globally. We pretty much know where everyone is. We've talked to everyone uh, on the planet. We um, at least once were uh, separate for some, there's still some isolated tribes, I believe in Papua New Guinea and some other places where we're intentionally trying to minimize contact with the outside world with them. But for the most part, um, we are talking collectively. We're talking globally. Um, we are communicating globally. We we are now at the point where humanity can have a, a global effect on the planet. We need to think about 
dehumanization is fundamentally incompatible with us being um, with us achieving our goals as a as a as a society mm-hmm. um, globally and locally. So why does dehumanization keep happening? How do we stop it? That's what the work of anti-oppression is. Um, so if you think about slavery, if you think about patriarchy, if you think about and still today, there's, you know, the slave, uh, the global slave trade. Um, is bigger than it was at the height of the transatlantic slave trade um, by by many estimates. Um, it simply has gone underground in terms of legality. Things like that. Like, um, when is this going to stop? When are we going to stop killing each other? When are we going to stop dehumanizing each other? That's my question. And I feel like now is the appropriate time to be asking that level of a question. Because mm-hmm. if we don't fix this, um, we're going to not only continue to kill each other, we're actually going to um, destroy um, the planet, our home, um, a thing that is interconnected with us in ways that I feel like a lot of us don't even understand, like a thing that um, the planet is us and we are the planet. It's mm-hmm. it's it's like it's a womb that we've been incubated in um, and continue to rely on for a lot of things. Um, if we don't fix this, we're not going to survive, I think, in the long term. And that's okay. that's what I feel like the work of anti-oppression is about. It's one piece of what is this bigger question, but I feel like it's a fundamental question that we haven't asked ourselves um, as a collective in a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, so many, God, so many things <laughs> that we can talk about right now. Let's, let's start with just going into how did you come to this work? Um, mm-hmm. I, I think that specifically anti-oppression work is not something that you just like wake up one day and go, oh, that sounds fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's yeah. really hard work. So how did you, Reagan, get to get into this? I always knew um, ever since I was eight years old, the very first job that I wanted, and that was the job I was sure I wanted for a long time until I got into college, was being a prosecutor. Um, And that's because I grew up watching Law and Order, and I loved, like, I just loved, like, this notion of, oh, the people who, like, fight for people. Um, I've never lost that childhood sense of this isn't fair or this isn't okay, or I'm in pain, why aren't people hearing me? Therefore, if other people are in pain, why aren't people hearing them? I never lost that sense. And so um, my whole life, I wanted to do some kind of advocacy work. And at first it was being a prosecutor. Then it was, I want to be a civil rights attorney because I want to advocate for whole communities that have had this effect, um, have had negative or criminal or dehumanizing things happen to them. To me, I was like, oh, a civil rights attorney is someone who advocates for people on behalf of a group of people, which sounded better. Um, then when I got into college, I was like, so I want to study racism. I want to study how racism happens because I want to, I want to learn more about how do I, um, uh, what what the civil rights movement was combating. Um, I want to learn deeper about the history and context of that. So I went to school for public policy and sociology. And as I started to go to other trainings, lectures, et cetera, that's when I began to learn this language of anti-oppression. Um, really what changed it for me was in 2010, um, the first time I got this language in a solid way and really started to see a direction was um, uh, still an activist today, Jordan Garcia, um, he works with SEIU. Um, he gave a training to um, what was it called Engage Colorado, which is a bunch of progressive nonprofits. And they they came together to do a canvas against um, three bad amendments that were in Colorado at the time. And um, we got a presentation on the four eyes of oppression. And this was like, oh, my gosh, like this model is still my favorite model for understanding oppression. It's still what I teach to this day. There's so many layers and, de- and depths it goes into. But that is the first time. I heard an idea like that articulated. And that's before I even, I, I got introduced to um, power plus prejudice 
um, that model that a lot of people use. Um, I still think Four Eyes is a superior model um, to that even. But that was the first time anything like about that like got articulated. How does racism happen? And where does it happen at? It happens on all four of these levels. Because I didn't understand why I was having such frustrating conversations with people about why are people talking about I am not as an individual a racist and I'm talking about the history and I'm talking about the laws. Why can't I get them to understand that? Four Eyes helps you actually dissect conversations like that. Um, so yeah, that's how I, that's what I consider my entry into the work. And then over time, I continue to uh, educate myself on different aspects of things. I have a lot of different interests that I bring into my approach to anti-oppression. I bring in philosophy, ethics, media, um, my personal experiences, a lot of different things to kind of um, contextualize all of this for people. But that felt like the beginning of me. I was like, oh, I've never heard the term oppression articulated like this for me before. Interesting. So for me and for our audience, can you quickly break down what the four eyes of oppression is? Absolutely. Um, so um, all oppressive systems. So when you think of an oppressive system, think racism, sexism, heterosexism, homophobia, classism, ableism, ageism, all those isms are systems of oppression. All systems of oppression operate on four fundamental levels. And if they're not operating on these levels, then we need to question if it's really a system of oppression. So this actually invalidates conversations about, well, what about reverse racism? There is no reverse racism because it does not operate on these four levels. Mm -hmm. um, so um, the four levels are the ideological level. So this is like the ideas and ways of thinking we have about groups of people. Um, uh, so all oppressive systems start with dehumanization. They start with this idea that this group of people is different, inferior, at the bottom of a hierarchy. Therefore, um, they don't deserve this. Therefore, they need to be separated in this way. Therefore, their interests don't matter, etc. So all oppressive systems st start with an ideology that is oppressive to a group of people. Um, and then those ideologies get codified. They get made into rule and law and policy um, based on... Um, beliefs in those ideological ideas. So if you take the idea that um, black people are um, inherently more violent or more criminal than other races of people, that became, um, that became, um, was used as a justification to then talk about why black people need to be enslaved or, or a slave race inherently. Um, are we at institutions that basically um, yeah, said black people are a different class of people. Um, they are subhuman. And we had institutional rules and policies in the United States that that basically mandated that black people can't learn to read or write black people um, will, um, you know, are limited from accessing public space in certain ways, like have curfews and things like that. Black people are literally property and can be owned by other people. When we get into Jim Crow, how those laws came up. So that's the institutional layer of oppression. Then the interpersonal layer is our interactions as individuals and um, as uh, groups. So our interactions based on, um, still based on these uh, ideologies, these stereotypes we have about people, and also reinforced by these institutions, people then pick that up and it changes and transforms our social interactions with each other. Um, so racial slurs, insults, uh, the types of assumptions and expectations people bring into their interactions with other, um, with other uh, marginalized groups. Um, uh, all of that is the interpersonal layer. And that's the layer most people get stuck on. They think that's the only way oppression shows up. So all racism is, is a mean individual who's mean to other people based on their race. No, that's one layer racism is. It's not, but it's not the ideological or the institutional layer. Um, and then the last one is internalized. How do those other three layers affect you as 
a, a person directly affected by these systems. So this is the psychological harm that comes from being a marginalized person. This is the double consciousness that we've heard talked about by Webb Dubois. This is the um, uh, stereotype threat. This is code switching. This is all of those things, those ways that we manage as individuals living in an oppressive system, what we internalize, uh, what we do with our behavior, and also the opposite analysis. So um, what do privileged people internalize about themselves uh, growing up as a privileged class in society? So how do white people feel about themselves? How do men feel about themselves growing up in a society where they are the dominant or privileged class? Uh, so that's the four of oppression. Fascinating. So, <laughs> I mean, and, and the work that you're doing anti in anti-oppression is, it's not just about race as, as I'm understanding it, right? So it's like mm-hmm. taking on the patriarchy or toxic masculinity. It's looking at privilege versus someone who's not. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like a marked difference to me than what I traditionally know and understand as um, equity, inclusion, and diversity work. How mm-hmm. is it different? Is it disruptive to that other approach? I would say um, to me, it is an umbrella for why, diver- like it's an umbrella over diversity, equity, inclusion. So we can talk about um anti-oppression as a means in and of itself. But I'm saying when we're talking about diversity and inclusion, if it's not being done through an anti-oppressive lens or being done with the foundational understanding of anti-oppression, this is why it's not working. Like those are the, oppression is what diversity, equity, inclusion is meant to disrupt to me. Mm -hmm. So um, without the foundation of understanding what oppression is, the underlying theory of oppression, then we're not doing diversity, equity, inclusion well. So it's disruptive to the current way, um, I would say diversity, equity, inclusion is being approached at the organizational level and at the business level. Um, But it also is a, it also does not invalidate those concepts. It's a way to actually anchor those concepts in something stronger. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, what's really fascinating to me is that I think the words anti-oppression are in themselves disruptive. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was somewhere recently, um, really before like all the social, di- very recently before all the social distancing became a, a big thing. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and, and people were asking me, oh, what's what's coming up on the podcast? And I was like, oh yeah, I have somebody come on to talk about anti-oppression. And I could just feel the energy changing in the room. There was a lot of, <laughs> there were a, a couple of, you know, people of color in the room, but it was, it was mostly a white space. Yeah. And there was like, what does that mean? And it, you could just feel like <laughs> this anxiety happening. And I was like, huh, that's an interesting response. All I did was say the words. Right. <laughs> I didn't invent the words. I didn't, you know, I'm not in this, in this space really. Um, what do you, what is it about that? What do you think that's about? Um, I feel like it's a combination of things. First, I I do feel like there is less, um, most people have, are aware of the definition of oppression, but have never heard the term anti-oppression or maybe don't know what that means in a, in a context of how does someone work to be anti-oppressive or do anti-oppression. So I feel like that's part of it. I feel like another part of it is, um, to me, to me, I love the word so much. To me, this is one of those words that hopefully is not able to be co-opted. It's one of those terms that 
the diversity continues to have an ambiguous meaning for a lot of people. Some people are like, well, you can have diversity of experience. And you know, I lived in Highlands Ranch and she lived in Littleton. That's diversity. No, it's not. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to say it. And you can, people disagree with me if you want, but that is not diversity. I'm sorry. (laughs) And so anti-oppression gets you out of having that conversation because I'm just like, no, it's about diversity for people who have not been in the room. People have been marginalized. It's about diversifying our spaces with those people. Therefore, that's not the that's not just it's not an experience, it's diversity based on identities that are salient in our lived experiences and some experience. We can have that because there's rural versus urban. That isn't important in terms of lived realities, but it but we also understand that in anti-oppression, why that's important, the distinction between rural and urban. So um so I would say um it's a lack of familiarity with that, with the term. And it's the term kind of smacks you in the face is my point. Like the term Mm -hmm. to me, I was just like, there is no other way to interpret what anti-oppression is. What is oppression? Uh, We're not about that. And then I love when people are just like, yeah, but you're, you're in favor of uh, like anti-oppression. Doesn't that mean you're in favor of white people like being restricted in this way? Like, nope, that's not what I'm in favor of. I'm in favor of all harm reduction. That includes the oppressor. That includes, um, that includes, how we are all collectively being harmed by this. And there is no, there is no interpretation of this that says you're advocating for something that's going to harm me. No, I'm advocating for something that does not harm you and does not harm others. You need to listen to how historically harmed groups are being harmed by current systems, but what, however we change or transform the system, I'm never, I'm not advocating for that transformation to harm you as well. So to me, it's like, it almost sounds scary at first, but then we start talking about it. People are like, Oh, I, yeah, why aren't we doing that? This this makes more sense to me. It's one of those terms that um, smacks you in the face, but it's it's less ambiguous almost than diversity, equity, inclusion, because folks can folks can who are in privileged positions or not thinking about marginalization can transform those words to mean whatever they want. When we're talking about we're not being oppressive, like people are like, oh, oppressive. Wow, like that has a lot of emotional weight. Well, what do you mean mm-hmm. by that? Um, I just feel like it's one of those words, and I and I love it for that reason. Hopefully, that will that is not a word that we will lose to the alt right or conservatives who have taken a lot of our language and flipped it on its head. Um, Anti oppression to me is one of those terms that that um, is meant to strike people in such a strong way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how has that been striking to people who would define themselves as um, allies? Um, I feel like a lot of allies, um, people who are looking to do allyship well is, is, is how I try to talk about it. Um, I feel like the term is, um, it causes a deeper emotional connection to what it, what exactly it means to be an ally, to be doing allyship well means, um, let's be real about what oppression is. Oppression is premature death. Oppression is trauma. Oppression is, is deep pain. Um, and all of those things. So when you're, when you're being, when you're saying I'm ready to step and be an ally, that means you understand the depth of harm that is happening with oppressive systems. Um, that means that allyship is not, is not something you take lightly. It's not a wanton activity. I talk about the pitfalls of allyship because when I'm like, well, if you're doing allyship based on, um, I want to be seen a certain way, or I want to be seen as the wokest person in the room, or I want to, I want to feel better about myself in terms of it's about me. And I'm like, that means you don't get it. Like you have to be in the headspace of, um, 
people are dying and suffering because of these systems. I'm stepping up to say, I'm not going to be complicit in this. What are the ways I'm going to work against it? Um, so to, to use the term anti-oppression and say you're an ally, as opposed to I'm an ally to diversity or I'm an ally, I believe in inclusion. And you can kind of turn that into something weaker than what the term is supposed to be. Um, uh, yeah, to me, it calls allies to, uh, to a higher level of culpability and responsibility um, for stopping oppression. I think I have a lot to say about this. And so I'm sort of deciding <laughs> where do we start? Um, okay, so we'll start with, with a, a quick story about something that happened recently. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, first of all, I, I think the context is, and I think most of, of listeners of this show know this about me is that I am I am racially ambiguous. Like people look at me, they don't know what box to put me in. And that opens some doors for me. I I am aware of a level of privilege that it creates for me. Mm-hmm. Um, it also means that some people are willing to say things around me and to me that they would not say to somebody that is obviously black. Mm. Right. So it also on the bright side, I guess, the silver one of the silver linings to that is that um people who consider themselves allies are sort of willing to ask me questions, which on one hand I appreciate and I'm I'm happy to try to be I don't want to say a teacher because I, I wouldn't call myself that on any level, to be someone that they would, I guess, be open to going to Mm -hmm. (laughs) but at the same time when you get the same question over and over again it is it's tedious Mm -hmm. and so recently I was I was asked to be on this panel um at the end of the panel a person stood up and said you know what is your advice what should those of us who are allies do to well, the question was specifically, what should those of us that are allies do beyond what we're already doing? That was the, the question. And I, I was like, what? To me, it was the most tedious, frankly, moronic question in the world, especially because I get asked that question with regularity in some mm-hmm. form or the other. And I think my response was not what she expected. Like I was not going to give her a laundry list to do at this point. I sort of feel like, okay, thanks for asking the question, but at the same time, I am not here to coddle you. I am not a diversity inclusion um, (laughs) speaker or consultant for this reason, because I am tired of this one Oh one. Like Mm -hmm. you have access to Google. There is a whole body of research and work on this topic exactly so how do you, I guess the question is like how do you respond to those things how do you work with people who are considering themselves to be quote-unquote allies but they seem to be like incapable or refuse to move past the understanding of how to use the word yeah, I think that's a good example. Um, I think what tends to be frustrating is that I don't think the average person looking to be an ally is aware of how easy it is to fall into kind of a performative space where you are not concentrating your efforts in the right place. And, and it becomes actually, 
I want to avoid making a mistake um, because I want to avoid being seen uh, being seen as a bad person. Already problematic means you don't understand uh, the approach you need to have to allyship. Or I don't want to be, um, or I want to, yeah, I want to do this to feel good, or I want to do this to be seen as this type of woke person. So I feel like then they start asking questions about, I just need someone to give me like a, a list of 10 things I need to do. Then I can feel good about that. And I can point to the list of things I'm doing. And I'm just like, um, and I push back to say, I can give you some things to start on. One of the things is going to be like reading about 10 books. Cause I do need you to know some of the history of what we're talking about. Um, there, I do believe that there is a rush to action that is sometimes inappropriate, oftentimes inappropriate. It becomes like I'm skipping over thinking deeply and understanding that this is a skill I have to learn. It's like when people say, like, I'm learning to become an engineer. When do I get to the engineering part? And they're like, well, you got to learn the science behind it. You got to learn what you're doing. You got to practice. You're going to mess up. Like allies need to think of it as that deep of a skill set. And they're, they don't think of it in that way yet. Um, so I think that's one of the issues. Um, I think, um, white supremacy culture, one of the aspects of that is basically this sense of urgency. So sometimes when allies are doing like, okay, we've talked about it for an hour. What can I be doing? What can I be doing? And I'm just like, no, you're, you're not, you're going to go out there and mess up and do something problematic that you don't even know what you're doing yet. You need to take some time to think and listen. Then when folks are ready to take action, a lot of times they're falling into performative action. They're not taking action based on what they've already been told to do. So just like you said, you say, hey, this question has been asked a million times. You should have done some work already to know what you should be doing. If you need help refining stuff, if you need help understanding what this specific community in Colorado is asking of allies, maybe that's a better question. But just saying, what should I be doing? Um, basic research will give you some good questions. Um, and also, you're not basing it on what folks are needing. There's there's plenty of folks in community who are just like, yeah, we need we need meeting space, we need uh, food made, we need um, transportation, we need money for our projects. You've you've been hearing that this whole time. Are you talking about what am I should be doing? Are you doing all five of those things? If so, then I count you as doing pretty good in terms of the actions. Mm -hmm. uh, are you funding our movements? Are you are you meeting um, emergency needs and things like that? If not. Um, until you're doing some of that stuff, I don't know why you're even asking a question about what are some more advanced actions I was doing. So I laughed at your example because the first thing I would have said to that person is, um, what do you mean uh, on top of what we're already doing? What are allies already doing? Most allies are not doing much not doing anything. <laughs> I mean, it's just, so, it's like this yeah. buzzword now where people feel good about saying it. And I'm just like, I was, I was not the one that day. I sort of like had a moment in answering the question and everybody else was sort of a little bit more, I don't know, soft uh -huh. <laughs> around their responses. But I was just, at that point I was done. I mean, literally this event, a reading list had been provided ahead of time <laughs> to yeah. the audience. Like, this is what you should read to, you know, understand the context of this conversation. So to ask that question um, as a white woman to a, a panel of you know, exclusively people of color, I, I just felt like it was a little bit of a slap in the face where I was like, fucking Google it, Google it. <laughs> like you, this is, you have as, as a person who, who is in a position to call yourself an ally, then that means you have a great deal of privilege and access to a lot of things that yeah. oppress people may not have access to. So why are you not using your basic resources like the internet to, I don't know, do anything? 
instead of wasting my time and pissing me off with your question. <laughs> so that was absolutely <laughs> that was my response. <laughs> I had a moment. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, and sometimes folks need to be told that. And I get asked that constantly. They're just like, people basically said, how do we strike a balance between, you said we need to be taking direction from marginalized communities. How do I strike a balance between marginalized people saying they're constantly tired of being asked over and over again what to do? Because I'm like, that's not what I just said to do. I didn't say go to us and ask what to do all the time. I said you're taking direction from us to be like, what are, what are communities of color already doing in terms of activism? How can you support work that's already being done? That's taking direction. That's also not asking what to do. It's also showing up a week before, uh, two or three weeks before the rally saying, okay, what help do y'all need? Do y'all need help getting the word out? Do y'all need help raising the money? Do y'all need space to do this? Like, it's basically being proactive in your, um, in your approach to allyship. But yeah, like, uh, expecting everyone to give you a list of what to do. That is labor. That that's like an additional labor ask. You need to understand that. So it's like, they don't understand, like, um, and, and folks understand it on, again, a level that's different from this. You would understand that, hey, if I'm married to someone and every time I come home, they're just like, well, I'm willing to wash clothes and do laundry and all this stuff. Just tell me what to do. You're like, no, come home and just do it. Like we've had the conversation once. Now you need to start doing it. And then if you mess up the laundry or you have a question, you can ask me what kind of detergent to use. But don't be like, what should I be doing? We've had the conversation already. So you should start doing some stuff. <laughs> I totally love that example. It's like if somebody were constantly asking you how to wash the dishes, it's like, you know how to wash the dishes. Stop asking me already. I feel like some of it comes from this quote unquote fear of messing up, which is actually getting into performative allyship. And it's another form of fragility because I'm like, you are going to mess up. You need to emotionally regulate and control yourself when you mess up and be able to take feedback when you mess up, but you are going to mess up. There is no such thing as I can get it good enough at this not to mess up. There are, there are white anti-racist activists who have been doing this 20, 30 years and they mess up. Um, and it's because, yeah, you, you're not living in it. You're not embedded in it. There's stuff you're not going to get. And so I feel like it's, they don't understand where the, where that question is really coming from. The emotional place that question is coming from is actually that place and not from, I really want to be super effective and I want to have the most impact where I can. So that may be intellectually some of it, but emotionally you continuing to ask for a list of activities that you want means you're not hearing or understanding enough of what you need to. So from your perspective, what are the things that need to be happening right now to create real and sustainable systemic change? An entire populace, like the public needs to basically realize we do not have the knowledge that we need to have on basically history and theory that we need to have in order to make decisions better. Like we're reproducing some of the same mistakes because we have done a terrible job of articulating exactly what it is we need to be learning and the values and the history behind that. So um, the reason why we went from slavery to segregation to the current criminal justice system and how racism has shown up there is because um, people have merely transformed oppressive systems in, into other kinds of systems that are still oppressive, but they've transformed how it looks and how it reacts to the populace. At the end of the day, the folks who have the power, um, the folks who are interested in maintaining their power, they have been able to maintain that power through all of these res revolutions and, and, and transformative um, ways of thinking um, because we haven't quite gotten it right yet about what does it mean to have an intelligent, well-educated, um, compassionate, aware public that actually has all of their needs met in a way to be able to think in this way. Because another big trick is if um, 
if all of us are kind of at the bottom of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs and all of us are being like, I'm worried about my retirement, I'm worried about my kids, I'm worried about my health, it's it's actually more difficult to think on a structural, empathetic, theoretical level. It feels more irrelevant to your life. So that actually is a, is a deficit to be able to think through and do things well, to be able to make compassionate systems. That I feel like is purposeful. C- keeping us in a, in a place of scarcity, I think is purposeful by the folks who wanna maintain their power, as well as not educating us on our history. We're educated on still a bunch of myths about American history instead of sitting with what America actually is and what America has actually done. Um, so we don't have what we need to actually do this work well. So I feel like what we need is a total revamp of education. And if we can't change it in K through 12, um, I feel like that's one avenue we need to change it in, like school board elections, textbooks, who's writing the stuff. Um, but if we can't change it in K through 12, we at least need to communicate to the adult population. Hey, it's the onus is still on you to go out and get this education, pay people of color to teach you it. But the onus is on you to still get this education if we can't do it systemically. Um, So get the education, work to transform the institutions you're already embedded in. So every workplace you're embedded in, every place you volunteer, every place you shop, work to make sure those places are being anti-oppressive and diverse, equitable and inclusive in their practices um, because you already have buy-in there. They already care about your relationship with them there. If everyone starts doing those two things, I feel like we can start getting better. Um, Plus, we need a deep, a deeper engagement with the civic, uh, the civics in, in the United States. Um, so um, voting plus one more thing is very important. So not just voting, but voting plus one. Um, and the Colorado Narrative Project talks about that. So not only do you need to vote, you need to go to at least one community meeting. You need to be uh, donate to at least one nonprofit. Um, we have to own, fund, construct, do the work ourselves. No one is going to save us. We have to do the work and we have to be ready to do it in order for it to get done. And essentially that's what it is. Folks need to understand that the onus is on them. What labor am I putting into rebuilding my society? What labor am I putting into civic engagement? Um, What labor am I putting into taking direction from communities of color and other marginalized communities um, like the LGBTIQA community, uh, low income and working class folks, et cetera. Um, I feel like, I feel like that's my strategic plan for how to fix it. Um, And, and I feel like those three steps are so big steps that we, we need to work on getting those together. And then we'll be at the place to even have a collective conversation about what else to do. Because it's not to say there's more to do, but it is to say without the education, without the, um, without the labor involved with the, with people and without us changing the places we're already embedded, like, um, I'm not big on, I don't know, like, Trying to get a multinational corporation like Amazon to change versus trying to get your local workplace to change. It's almost like we're focused on, we could focus on strengthening um, the places we already have as opposed to this pie in the sky vision of, I wish these major things were doing things differently. We need to do that too. Um, but we're going to do that more through legislation. We're going to do more that more through collective organizing as opposed to something like boycotts and things like that. I'm just like, I want you to, I want, I, I, a lot of people are doing work, but I want them to focus the work more locally and a little bit different than what they're currently doing. So I'm not a person that's big on, on like, for instance, boycotting McDonald's. Cause I'm like, at the end of the day, that hurts the franchisee owner. We're not even reaching the CEO. We're not reaching the board to reach those people. We have to politically organize and start legislating against those people, regulating those folks to get to the point where able to do that we need to do the local stuff first we need to do the education first so that's my kind of plan 
Yeah, so I think McDonald's is a really good example um, because I get how someone would come to that conclusion. It's It at least seems to make sense, um, <clears throat> but at the same time, the impact of that on a marginalized community to shut down um, one McDonald's, like if, for example, if, if the community were a food desert then that has multiple impacts to shut down a McDonald's in a food desert um, community. Number one, you have things like unemployment that happen in that community because the people that work there probably also live in that community. Um, But a, a fast food chain like McDonald's has a dollar menu. And if you are low income, a dollar menu goes a really long way for you um, so it, it's creating a, another kind of hardship that I think most people don't tend to think about. You know, McDonald's maybe isn't the most healthy option in the world, but it's still food. Um, so if, you know, you have to feed a family and it, you can get more for your dollar at McDonald's than you can somewhere else, of course you're going to go to McDonald's. I mean, th- those are the options that, you know, people have to make in America every single day of their lives. Um, so I understand that it sounds good and it feels good to shut down the one store. I think, yeah, I agree with you that it's it's not always the most strategic option and there can be longer term hardcore impacts on the specific community that everybody isn't thinking about. Exactly. And employment and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So I want to switch gears because I know that another big piece of your anti-oppression work surrounds uh, patriarchy and specifically an understanding of how patriarchy is an oppressive system, not just for women, but how it impacts men as well. And I I know that you talk a lot about um, the expectations men are under as a result of this system of patriarchy and how they're expected to be and perform in the world and that it not only impacts women, but it's it, ha- it has an oppressive effect on men as well. So I'd love you to talk about what that is, what that means, and what you're doing around it. Yeah, definitely. So um, so two classes I teach are, are, are one is on um, patriarchy or refresher and the, um, toxic masculinity. And I really love both of these um, trainings because how uh, patriarchy harms men in terms of the expectations we place on men. Um, and essentially those expectations are, um, are what is this concept of being a real man? And what are those expectations and assumptions behind what that is? And typically, um, we have a gender binary and along that binary, we, we, we basically have divided, um, core human traits and attributes, like holistic human traits and attributes. We've split them up and divided them amongst the two sexes, um, in the, in the gender binary as we construct it, um, in the United States. And, what that has resulted in is like men are supposed to be these things and embody these things. And those things are being aggressive, being dominant, um, being hypersexual, um, uh, being the protectors, being the providers, being the better leaders, being the, um, you know, leaders of a household, leaders of a business, et cetera. All of these, all of these things that are very much about patriarchy and the way men are privileged, but also put men in a box about what they're expected to be, how they're expected to behave. And, um, and how men have to achieve this masculine ideal that actually is dissatisfactory, not only to women who are suffering under patriarchy, but are dissatisfactory to a lot of men themselves. Um, so 
this conversation to me is deeply humanizing to men. It's saying, yeah, remember on the playground when like you did something that wasn't considered masculine and all of a sudden you're getting called like you run like a girl or you're a pussy or you're a fag or something like that. What is, what is that? What was that about? Did that feel good to you? Um, then how, how, how did that shape how you felt like you had to show up in the world? Um, what was dissatisfactory about that to you? And let me actually tie that conversation about the harm that you fe are feeling to the conversation about patriarchy and feminism, because I don't think you realize that feminism has been having that conversation for a while. And this is what we're talking about, about how gender expectations harm both both genders and gender non-conforming and non-binary folks, because um, they have a different uh, uh, construct and disconnect with the gender binary as well. Um, so it's... um. To me, it's a very empowering and humanizing conversation. And men think that they are, are not going to like it until they hear it. And then it starts resonating with them on a lot of levels. And so I think it's very powerful where a group of folks who hadn't really considered what organizing for gender equity looks like for them, it's a very powerful conversation. So I feel like this is part of the way to call men to be allies against patriarchy is to talk to men more about, hey, patriarchy harms you too. Let's talk more about that because I don't think you've been in spaces to do that. Um, very much. And it feels really powerful. And it feels like a lot of men are ready to have that conversation. You know, one thing I've noticed with some men is that with the change socially in how women are expected to be treated, whether it be socially or in the workplace, I see some men being very nervous at best or hostile at worst. Um because they feel like they don't know how to be in this new reality. There's, you know, I hear men saying, well, this, it used to be okay to say this or do this or behave this way. And now it's not. And now I don't know how to be around women. I don't know. I don't know what's okay for me to say. I don't know what's okay for me to do. I don't know where it's okay for me to look. And I think that um, a lot of men feel like that this is a, a result specifically of Me Too movement, although it's not. Um, and I, I think, you know, they're just sort of lost. I get how it could feel whiplash. At the same time, I'm like, this didn't just happen. This has been a long fight that's been going on for a long time. Um, but I guess to try to be fair, it's new to some people. <laughs> um, so I'm curious to know how you would advise folks to help men move forward in this area and not feel so, I don't know, confused, lost. I feel like having some patience for I do think we we have the potential for this to be a paradigm shift. So just like folks of color are exhausted explaining this to white folks, I'm sure uh, women and folks targeted by sexism are exhausted explaining this to men and people privileged by sexism. But this I think is a different stage of the conversation. So I think um, having some um, patience for men who are just like. I really thought I was showing up in a way that was okay or that women wanted. And now I understand that's not true. So I need to recontextualize some things. Um, can I, can, can folks have that conversation with me or help me think through stuff? If that's the genuine way they're coming at the conversation, I feel like we can have some patience and some forwardness um, and some, and some uh, forthrightness. I mean, with that, um, some men are doing this like eye rolling thing. Oh my God, you can't even talk to women anymore. And I can't even ask women out. Like those guys still don't get, the harm that women are talking about, about what sexual harassment feels like, what sexual assault and not being believed feels like, um, 
the way men in power have used power consistently to try to gain uh, sexual dominance over everyone. Like, so that's another thing is just like, um, yes, exactly. Like men, like uh, folks who sleep with men and have to deal with men sexually, we all have some similar fucking complaints, really. You know? <laughs> that's 100% true. Yes. I hadn't even thought about that. Um, and so some, some of the most horrific stories of sexual assault and sexual coercion I've had have been from gay men in my life talking about dealing with other men. Um, and, um, and that's also another thing about toxic masculinity, men as victims, men as also victims of sexual assault and things like that get erased, but they have a lot to say about shit that they've dealt with too, um, on both sides. So, um, I feel like, um, I feel like if men have to approach the conversation, um, with uh men have to be open to listening you have to actually be willing to like uh like stop talking for a little bit listen to what the lived experiences of women and other folks targeted by sexism have been um you need to understand how um again presumptions and assumptions that you've made about who women are ways you've dehumanized women have also led you to making some of these poor decisions uh um have also led you to um have also led your actions uh the way of you seeing the world in a certain way have led to some problematic actions that you've been doing. So yeah, you need to listen to us. Like the number of men who, who continue to believe this myth about women enjoy being catcalled. Women enjoy this and that, like women enjoy being, being, being noticed and stuff like that. I'm just like, it's, it's a, it's no, like women have been consistent in saying that we don't fucking like that. Um, women may or may not enjoy a type of attention. The point is, Every woman's an individual and you need to navigate that and stop making assumptions about who we are collectively. Um, and it, and it's also women, women, the, the other side that's missing about this is that women also do enjoy sex. Women also, we are also sexually engaged and evolved beings and stuff like that. We're also not prudish. We're also not doing sex just because um, it's not a favor to you, et cetera. Like, it's just, it's weird that it's the Madonna whore complex. And I'm like, both of those are dehumanizing. Start looking as women as like you as fully fleshed out people, um, as well as people who have been put into a box, like you have been put into a box and we don't understand each other. The other thing I would say is women, we do have some things to listen to and learn about men's side of this. For instance, um, the number of men who say, um, I never get a compliment on how I appear, my appearance or how I look. I would love to be like men saying, I remember a compliment that I've gotten on my haircut for a year. I would love to also be seen as sexual, as physical, et cetera. Um, I also don't want to be seen as having to be the initiator, the aggressor, the pursuer all the time. When men talk about what it feels like to be on that end all of the time and how um, isolating that can feel, how you don't feel like you have any inherent value as a man unless you have money, status, power. So you're incentivized to be dominant. I think women, I feel like we know some of that, but I've had transformative conversations with men of being like, yeah, what this feels like to you, I hadn't really sat in that for a while. It's helped me have more effective conversations, like cross-gender conversations. That's what my answer is. Um, so that was a long-winded way of saying we need to have more cross-gender conversations of everyone listening to everyone, because I don't feel like we can even contextualize or talk about what is the experience of the other. Men don't get women. Women don't get men. 
uh, cisgender folks don't get gender nonconforming folks. And some of the folks who have the most interesting shit to say about gender right now are actually trans folks, folks who have actually lived and embodied both of these states. Um, they can tell you exactly how sexism and some of the experiences are showing up for them in really, really interesting ways. So we need to have more of these cross-gender conversations. And to me, that's the beginning. Thanks for sharing that. You know, we've talked a lot about oppression and and how specifically anti-oppression work is connected to, but different from equity, inclusion, and diversity, and how anti-oppression work is um, much more difficult to sidestep around. Because of that, I think on its own, it's very disruptive. I'd love to know how you, as someone in this space who's doing disruptive work, who is a disruptor, and are facing these really tough conversations every day for the most part, how do you keep going in this work when we know that it can be so, so hard? I do believe that um, if you want to picture like um, the, the Taoist symbol, the, the yin yang, I really believe that, that the nature between you taking care of yourself, you loving and caring for yourself and your ability to do community work is cyclical. They are not separate. They are interrelated in a way that you can almost think of it as, um, as being one thing almost. Um, and so what I mean by that is, um, the more I care about the work community being an ally to others, the more I humanize other people. It's also the more I humanize myself and remember that, um, my own suffering, my own pain, um, I feeling that and allowing myself to feel that allows me to remember other people are feeling this. And I, and that part of the reason I'm, I'm passionate about the work is I don't want other people to feel that way. And I, um, and the same thing, the joy and the laughter and the love that I feel in my life is what I want other people to have access to, too, and whatever, what that means to them. So, um, to avoid burnout, to avoid getting exhausted, remember that you are a part of your own work. You are part of the work of, you have to humanize yourself to be able to learn how to humanize other people. And so you are, you are a part of the puzzle of take time, um, to be, take time to reflect on things, take time to be in nature, take time to connect with people you care about, um, take time to think, take time to create, um, care for yourself, inject pleasure and joy in your life in some kind of way. I try to inject that every, every day. I try to have something I look forward to, et cetera. That is how I stay energized and motivated to do the work is, um, I do not take myself out of the equation. My ability to love and care for myself is my ability to love and care for other people because the the two values become interrelated. They become interconnected in my head. Um, and so I am such like a, a happy person. I would taste the terms of being miles ahead. I still have, um, um, I have major depressive disorder. I have anxiety. I have real like neurological and psychological um, differences, issues that, um, that also are, 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 um, hard to navigate and deal with, but the way where I am now versus where I was in my mid twenties is remarkable in terms of how much me doing both of these things has made sense to me. I have a sense of worth and purpose because of my community work and me helping other people. And I have a sense of worth and purpose about myself and my own life. Like I have a love for myself that I've never had before. And it has only made me a more compassionate and caring person. Um, even though I I've had that this whole time, I believe I've kept on to it this whole time since I've been a child. Um, 
So that's my advice to people is, is remember that you and, and caring for yourself is important. And if you're concerned about burnout from the work, to me, that means you haven't find that, found that right balance yet. Um, find work that is energizing for you. So you're still doing the work, but what do I, what am I passionate about? What do I love doing in the work? How am I contributing? And let me remember that, um, I need to, uh, I need to um, contribute to myself first. Like when they say like the first person you need to pay when you're saving is as pay yourself when you're, yeah. So, so yeah, you need to be doing compassion for yourself too. And maybe that's the first thing you need to do um, um, when you get up in the morning or something like that. So um, my advice to people is to keep both of those things in balance as best you can. And it really does um, transform your outlook, your perspective, at least it has for me. And I, I believe, um, other people and activists have said the similar thing. Once you find a balance with those two things, it really just feels like you are living a different kind of existence. And it's really amazing. Amazing. Reagan, how can our folks connect with you more and the work that you're doing? Absolutely. So one thing I wanted to let folks know is I'm running for RTD board of directors, um, for district H. Yes. So I'm running for office. <laughs> um, so district H is Littleton, um, Centennial, uh, Greenwood village, um, Highlands ranch. And, um, you can look up the RTD district map, um, to see if you're in my area. Uh, I'm in your district. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you vote for me in uh, 2020. I'm going to start uh, ramping up my campaign to do more canvassing and outreach, um, over the next couple of months. Um, so folks can find me on Reagan4RTD.com there. And if you want to follow me with my consulting work, you can follow me at ReaganBirdConsulting.com. Um, and then I post, um, events, community events and trainings that I do there. Um, and I also have a Facebook business page where I post, um, I post all my events as Facebook events as well. Um, so follow me any one of those three places and you can connect with me on private trainings, community trainings, um, consultation, uh, accountability partnerships. I do a lot of different stuff. And I also try to get out there in the public and have this information and knowledge get offered on a broader basis. So hope to see y'all and hope to connect. Awesome. All right, folks, you know what to do. Check the show notes so that you can connect with Reagan, learn more about her work and support her campaign if you can as well. You know that I love you. Thank you so much for supporting this show and for continuing to share this show. That's how we're growing. We've been growing you know, every month, um, even despite the pandemic situation. So thank you so much. If you haven't done so, so already, please subscribe, rate this show wherever you like to listen so that other listeners can hear us. And the best thing that you can do to support us is just keep sharing with your friends, family, let them know what you're listening to, let them know that they should listen to this show. Thank you so much again, Reagan, for joining us on the show. Loved having you and listeners. Thank you so much week after week, month after month for supporting this show. Go out and embrace your brilliance. I'll see you next week.